Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I'm Mark Honigsbaum. And I'm Hannah Maudsley. We're the disease detectives investigating everything you need to know about the Spanish flu. Today, we're exploring the notion that sometime in the near future, another pandemic virus will emerge again to threaten humanity in the way that the Spanish flu did 100 years ago. Yes, I think it's fair to say that these pandemic prophecies have reached hysterical levels at times. Scientists warned of the possibility that a new mutating strain of the H7N9 virus, commonly known as bird flu, has the potential to become a pandemic threat to humans. We at WHO believe that wild is now in the gravest possible danger of a pandemic. This morning, disease trackers in the CDC's Emergency Operations Center are on their highest level of alert, monitoring the outbreak around the clock. It's a sort of uh, all-hands-on-deck thing now so that we can draw on people who normally wouldn't be involved in this kind of infectious disease outbreak. It seems to me that these fears are driven by the spectre of the 1918 Spanish flu. The idea that if disaster can strike once, then it can happen again. So today we're going to explore why that might be the case and the role that virologists play in driving those fears. We were told to keep our mouths shut who, who was by the US and the Dutch government. It's in little tiny plastic vials with about a milliliter or less of fluid and it, it's often red so it sort of looks like Kool-Aid. I still think it's a fair thing to say that this is one of the most dangerous flu viruses one can make. Episode 7, The Pandemic Fear Industry. In episode two, Resurrecting the Killer, we described how in 1997, Jeffrey Taubenberger, a then unknown scientist in flu circles, succeeded in retrieving key fragments of the Spanish flu virus from an Alaskan woman who'd been buried in permafrost. By 2005, Jeff had succeeded in reconstructing the virus's entire genome. As we were sequencing the virus, the original idea that we would look at sequences and, and find mutations that were unique, that were not present in other viruses that might give us clues as to why the 1918 virus was so virulent, were modified to the idea that it might be possible now to actually make viruses that contained one or more 1918 genes and maybe ultimately all of the 1918 genes and study them carefully in the laboratory in animal models and in tissue culture and so on. So it's 2018, the 100th anniversary of the pandemic. And earlier this year, I visited Jeffrey at his lab at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. So I'm very excited because I've just got closer to the influenza virus than I ever thought possible. For security reasons, my producer and I weren't allowed to use our recording equipment. I recorded this audio diary afterwards. We've just come out of Building 33. It's a BSL Level 3 secure wing. That means that you cannot bring any electronic equipment in. We had to check everything at the door. And then Jeffrey led us through a series of negative air pressurized doors. The negative air pressure, of course, is to stop anything that you don't want to get out, getting out of the building, such as a deadly virus from 100 years ago. And he led us along the corridor where his team work on a variety of viruses. And then we got to the end of the corridor and we, we just turned and he pointed through a little window and he said, and that's where we keep the 1918 Spanish flu. And he pointed through this little window at a twin guard technology Sanyo made freezer. We were about three feet away from it, looking at it through the window. 
So we keep things at a very cold temperature, minus 80 degrees Celsius. It's in little tiny plastic vials with about a milliliter or less of fluid in it. It's often red, so it sort of looks like Kool-Aid. Sounds quite refreshing for a deadly virus. Yeah, but you wouldn't want to drink it. So were you able to enter the room where the Spanish flu is stored? No, that wasn't possible. That would have entailed rigorous security clearances way above my pay grade. I'll let Jeff pick up the story. We have to have badge permission, which has my identification on the badge, but then we have to do an eye scan that scans the, the iris. As I understand it, it's the pattern of the two irises and the distance between them that has been recorded. So I think it would be very hard to fake. And so you do have to have undergone a significant FBI background investigation. And you have to be continually monitored and trained and evaluated and checked uh, to, to have this access. The iris scan sounds like something out of Mission Impossible. So once you get access, what do you wear to go into the biolab? You have a set of cotton scrubs underneath, and then you have this impermeable plastic Tyvek bodysuit, and then you have two pairs of booties on over that, and then you have a a separate apron, you have two pairs of gloves, you have this PAPR, this uh, positive air purifying respirator with a face shield and a motor inside, so it's like a bicycle helmet, and it has a fan inside with a HEPA filter, and it whirs, it's very loud inside, but the air is quite cool, so it's kind of comforting. You see, it puffs up. Uh, sort of like the Michelin Man. So this is what you look like when you're working with the 1918 virus. That's a brilliant image. Yeah, I mean, Jeff certainly finds it comforting in his biosuit. But visiting the lab with him, I realise this is really quite a serious matter. I mean, the Spanish flu may be in a secure freezer, but Jeff can't afford to relax his guard for a moment. So why does Jeffrey want to keep such a deadly virus on ice? Would it be better to destroy it, do you think, so that there's no risk of it escaping and sparking another pandemic? Jeff argues scientists need the virus in order to work out what makes it tick. Only then can they find a way around its defences and manufacture a vaccine to neutralise future pandemic threats. So we do animal studies to understand how influenza viruses adapt to mammals, how they cause disease, but then also as a basis for evaluating new vaccines or drugs. We've done some very interesting studies, for example, showing that if you give a mouse a lethal dose of the 1918 virus and then treat them with a drug that has no effect on the virus, has no antiviral properties, but just targets part of the inflammatory response, the mice can be saved from infection. It's also possible that that could be used in humans in cases of severe influenza infection. But this information is public knowledge, right? So if scientists can access it, couldn't the same knowledge be exploited by terrorists? Well, curiously, when Jeff first published the full sequence of the Spanish flu in the journal Science in 2005, those concerns weren't uppermost in people's minds. Good evening. It's been described as the greatest threat to human health in the world today. Then came the 2005 bird flu outbreaks in Southeast Asia, prompting apocalyptic warnings that H5N1 or some other avian influenza virus might trigger a pandemic on the scale of 1918, except that this time, many millions more people would die. There's growing evidence that the virus could jump species, change to an even more lethal strain, and threaten millions of human lives. Fast forward seven years to 2012. That's when fears about the potential misuse of this new science were ramped up by a study at the Erasmus Medical Centre in Holland conducted by Ron Fouché and his colleague Yoshihiro Kawaoka. 
Known as a gain-of-function experiment, the idea was to see whether by passing the H5N1 bird flu virus repeatedly through ferrets, it could become better adapted to those animals, and hence potentially to other mammals, including humans. This is a tried and tested technique that dates back to Louis Pasteur's experiments with rabies in 1885. Basically, the idea is that the more you pass diseased material from one animal to another, in Pasteur's case, dogs to rabbits, in Fouchier's birds to ferrets, the more you can train the virus to infect and spread in that new species. Long story short, Fouchier and Kawaoka's experiment succeeded. But before they could publish their findings, their paper was called in for review. Unfortunately, by now the press had got wind of the experiment. Here's Ron Fouchier on the fallout. There was a, a Sunday editorial in the New York Times calling this virus that we created the doomsday virus. But that, that editorial was written without knowing any facts about this virus at all. They didn't know how virulent it was. They didn't know how transmissible it was. They didn't know what we did. They didn't know the mutations we put in. They didn't know anything, but they called it a doomsday virus. And that's how this thing got blown out of proportion. You know, the press was making up stories because they didn't get the facts. Fouché believes that if we want to develop vaccines and other countermeasures against highly virulent bird flu viruses, then gain-of-function studies are essential. But these experiments can also be sources of fear. The concern was that if one did it for beneficial purposes, then someone with evil intent could do it too. This is Eileen Chofnitz, a microbiologist and former advisor to U.S. Senator John Glenn. Keep in mind that gain-of-function studies are not trivial studies. It requires a certain amount of scientific sophistication. You still do need to do not only proof of concept, but also challenge experiments with ferrets, which are not the easiest animals to work with. I know because I used to work with ferrets. but. Many individuals made the leap that it didn't take that many steps to make a transmissible, lethal H5N1 influenza virus. And that was the wake-up call. In the last 20 years, a huge industry has grown up around pandemic preparedness. I met Eileen Chofnitz, who's also an expert on biological and chemical weapons, in Washington, D.C., the epicenter of this industry. Even though it was February, it was bright and sunny, just like on the day in 2001 when the plane plowed into the Pentagon. My office overlooked the Potomac River and was on the flight path to National Airport and was directly across the river from the Pentagon. So that was a day that Eileen will never forget. On September 11, 2001, she was working in the Environmental Protection Agency. I was talking to a colleague of mine, and as I was talking to my colleague, I saw out of the corner of my eye a bright orange flash and a dark cloud of smoke at the Pentagon. We have a report of a plane crash somewhere in the area of the Pentagon. I said to my friend who was watching the television in North Carolina, the Pentagon has been hit. This is an act of terrorism. My friend said, no, it's not on the news. And I said, wait 20 minutes. We're looking at a uh, live picture from Washington, and there is smoke pouring out of the Pentagon. 
that day everything changed, and only weeks later another terror struck, this time using biological weapons. Investigators still don't know where it came from, but the anthrax that killed two Washington postal workers seems to have the hallmarks of a sophisticated weapon built by someone who knows how to deliver a lethal blow. There were two letters that were sent to two senators. One, Senator Tom Daschle, who was then the majority leader of the Senate, and one, Senator Leahy. The Daschle letter was opened in the Daschle Correspondence Office and released anthrax. More than two dozen staffers tested positive for exposure, but not infection, after the anthrax-laced letter was opened in Senator Daschle's office. Microbiologists say that anthrax appears to have been produced by a probe. The Leahy letter was still in the mail pouch, and when that happened, it closed down the Senate office building because in their form, the anthrax spores you had a solid that was acting as if it were a gas. Each spore can be no bigger than five microns, about a tenth as wide as a human hair, if it's to infect a person's lung. The spores spread throughout the heart Senate office building, into the elevator corridors, into the Dirksen Senate office building, because these buildings are connected and air flows between them in very unusual but predictable ways. The anthrax mailings resulted in the deaths of five people and the infection of 27 others. The individual or individuals behind the attacks were never proven. DNA evidence pointed to a scientist working at a government biodefense facility, but before he could be arrested, he committed suicide. The potency of the anthrax has experts worried about what could happen next. They warn that any person or organization capable of turning out this anthrax may be able to produce a more lethal biological weapon. And afterwards, politicians wanted to know what other pathogens scientists might have lurking in their labs that could present a similar biological threat should they fall into the hands of terrorists. They passed a, a couple of pieces of legislation that really focused on select agents and the handling of these materials and the whole security apparatus surrounding select agents. So what does Eileen mean by select agents? Select agents are biological agents and toxins that have been determined to have the potential to pose a severe threat to public health and safety. The point is that prior to the 2001 anthrax attacks, Security wasn't so tight for scientists working with these agents, which include flu viruses. You did not have to undergo a background check. You did not have to work in a high security vault. After the select agent rules became laws, you did. The result was that when Jeffrey Taubenberger sequenced the Spanish flu virus in 2005, the study was reviewed by the US's National Scientific Advisory Board for Biosecurity. That's a special board set up by the US government to advise on biological agents. On that occasion, the board decided that the benefits outweighed the risks. And the study was published, clearing the way for further experimentation 
by Jeff and other scientists in controlled biocontainment facilities. But when, in 2012, Fouchier and Kawaka carried out their experiment on H5N1 with ferrets in a laboratory in Holland, their paper met with a very different reception. After that paper was submitted, we were told to keep our mouths shut. By, by who? say anything anymore. Who, who was by the US and the Dutch government. By now, pandemic preparedness had become a multi-million dollar industry. Driven by fears about globalization and corporate farming practices, concerns were mounting that H5N1, or some other species of bird flu, might jump the species barrier and spark a pandemic. We have little doubt that there are going to be more influenza pandemics, and more importantly, they could come faster and more furiously just because of the animal-human contact issues. One of the leading prophets of doom was Mike Osterholm, founder and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Think of chickens much like you might think of being at the gambling table, the roulette table. Every time you throw onto that uh, roulette table, you have a chance of winning or losing. But if you actually are throwing millions of throws a second, the chances of finally hitting a winner just go up astronomically. Well, that's what we've done in terms of creating this animal-human interface and the very large number of animals. The chance that we're going to get one or two or three viruses that are going to basically make it from a primary avian gut virus to a human lung virus and then be transmitted by humans to humans goes up substantially with just every throw at the genetic roulette table. The problem was no one knew how great the risk was. And rather than waiting for the lottery of nature, Ron Fouché decided to test the theory in his laboratory. We took a bird flu virus that is not transmissible in mammals and put it in the nose of a ferret. And then we repeated that several times to then see that the virus that after 10 passages in ferrets, and which was nicely adapted to replicate to high titers in the upper areas of a ferret, now also became airborne transmissible. For flu viruses, Ferrets are a good mammalian model. Ferrets have receptors for the virus that are very similar to the receptors of humans and the distribution of those receptors along the airways from the tip of the nose to your lower alveoli, that distribution of receptors in the airways is very similar. Fouché had demonstrated what until then had only been a supposition, namely that the H5N1 bird flu virus could go airborne and passed directly between mammals. The virus needed just five mutations to become an aerosol. However, it wasn't a very efficient aerosol. It was still hard for the ferrets to infect each other this way. And Fouché insists there was zero risk the virus could escape his lab. Like Taubenberger, Fouché's security measures are extremely tight. All of these experiments are done to begin with by extremely well-trained personnel, of course, they all have. Before they do experiments like this, they, they have at least four or five years of experience working with flu viruses under different biosafety conditions. We also wrap up the experiment entirely in a steel cabinet that's airtight. There's electronic controls on the airtightness of the cabinet, such that if there's a leak, people would never go into the room unprotected. All the air that goes out is filtered through virus filters, double virus filters. People are still go in completely protected, so they're still wearing face masks and, and suits, such that if there were a leak while they were working there, they're still protected. 
There's electronic alarms to monitor the integrity of the cabinets in which the experiments are packed. People are vaccinated against flu, including bird flu. So there's layer upon layer upon layer of safety. And then if, let's assume that something breaks down, one of the isolator cages breaks down, that still doesn't mean much. You can still treat these people with antiviral drugs. We always work with viruses that are sensitive to antiviral drugs. And we have quarantine rooms here at Erasmus Medical Center. And so even if there would be an accident, there's nothing's going to happen. So there's, I think, five or six double layers of safety in the design of our facility and of our work that would make it extremely, extremely unlikely that something would go wrong. How easy would it have been for terrorists to copy your experiment and produce this aerosol virus themselves? That's close to impossible. There are only maybe two handfuls of labs that can do this type of work. You need very, very skilled scientists to do this work. Also, the technology to work with ferrets and to do this safely and not kill yourself is something that is not easy. And so you need good facilities, well-trained people to do this type of work. But another point to raise is that there are so many disease-causing agents out there that you could terrorize the world with. And why would you want to do this with flu and go through this highly skilled genetic engineering? There's no reason to do that. You can just take a natural pathogen and release it somewhere. If you're skilled to make the virus that we produce, then you're also skilled to use other viruses that would be better for this. So you have to realize that these bird flu viruses, they are not all that virulent. The highest case fatality rate of any flu virus that we've ever seen is about 2%. Now, how good is a weapon that kills 2%? You know, a machine gun kills 100%. Using viruses like this makes no sense whatsoever. Unfortunately for Fouchier, the US's National Scientific Advisory Board for Biosecurity disagreed and instructed Science and Nature magazines not to publish Fouchier's paper. But by then, Fouchier had already shared the highlights at a scientific conference, prompting that headline in the New York Times about a doomsday virus. The news is out and people start talking about the research, but the details are not open. And we were told to not disclose any of the details by the US government. And then after two months of deliberation of the NSABB, they come out with a decision that our manuscript cannot be published, that all the details of our manuscript should be classified. And of course, when the press hears that, then they think, well, okay, this is a really, really dangerous virus, because otherwise the NSABB wouldn't say this. This must be a more dangerous virus than the Spanish flu virus, because that paper was published and was approved by the NSABB, but this one's not. And so the press thinks that this is a really, really dangerous virus, and we are not allowed to give any details. The only thing I could say, no, that's not true. It's not so dangerous as you think it is. If I cannot share the data, then how am I going to make that point? Fouché may have been his own worst enemy. For instance, ABC quoted him as saying that he had crafted probably one of the most dangerous viruses you can make. I still think it's a fair thing to say that this is one of the most dangerous flu viruses one can make. But he claims he was quoted out of context. How dangerous that virus really is, is something that's then not shown in the broadcast, right? So everybody keeps saying that this virus kills 50% of the humans it infects, but that's wrong. That's completely off the mark. That's just the number that's reported by people who have no clue. So yes, this virus is now transmissible in our ferret model, 
but nobody asked how efficient would it be. And of course, that's, it's, it's also something that I wouldn't be able to address easily because the models we have are not quantitative transmission models, they are qualitative transmission models. We can read out transmission, but we cannot from that deduce that this virus would cause a pandemic. So we start with a virus that was pretty hot, but by making it transmissible, you reduce some of its virulence. But it's also not reported by the press. After a 60-day review, during which experts scrutinized Fushi and Kawaoka's experiment, their papers were eventually published in Nature and Science. Although the studies described airborne transmission of a modified bird flu virus among ferrets, there was no information about human-to-human -human transmission, and the experts agreed it couldn't be used to make a deadly biological weapon. Nevertheless, the uproar spooked the Dutch authorities and resulted in a moratorium on further gain-of-function research at the Erasmus Centre and other biohazard facilities, including Jeff's in Washington. Mike Osterholm, who was a member of the board that reviewed Fouchier and Kawaoka's paper, explained this thinking to me. We don't really understand what it's going to take for one of these viruses. And we were told as a board, which at the time I didn't agree with, but we were just on the cusp of an H5N1 outbreak uh, turning into a pandemic because the virus was changing such that it was getting closer and closer to a human fit virus that would not only be transmitted to humans, but then by humans. And of course, here we sit in 2018 and that hasn't happened. But just because a pandemic didn't occur in 2012, that doesn't mean it won't happen sometime in the future. And according to Mike Osterholm, it isn't a question of if, but when. If all of this activity continues, why would we not see a pandemic strain of influenza evolve when Mother Nature has been doing it since the beginning of time almost, surely back to Hippocrates? And so I think that that has in the past been a limiting factor is what is the animal, virus, human continuum contact. But I think anybody that is so foolish as to predict the next pandemic strain, when it'll occur and how it'll occur, is it's folly. Therefore, we just have to keep our preparedness activities going, knowing that it could be anything. For all we know, it could come out of pigs in Russia tomorrow or pigs in the Midwest of the United States. We don't know. This is something that will happen in nature. It hasn't happened yet. So in a sense, one could say it was a reckless experiment that Dr. Fouché and Kawaoka did. Others could say that this is an insight into how one can prepare for a natural inevitability, that this is how the virus could obtain these characteristics and prepare for it. Looking back, it's clear that Fouché could have done a better job of communicating with the media. It wasn't a good idea to tell the press that the hybrid virus was, in his words, probably one of the most dangerous viruses you could make. But it wasn't a doomsday virus either. That was media hype. As became clear when the full results of Fushi and Kawaoka's study were published, the virus was a pretty poor aerosol. It didn't transmit easily between ferrets via the air. On the other hand, the threat of H5N1 and other bird flus has not gone away. In fact, as we record this podcast, it's been reported that China is refusing to send samples of a new bird flu, labelled H7N9, to British and American scientists. 
They say it's essential to have those samples in order to know whether the virus, which has caused over 600 deaths since 2013, is mutating so as to become more widely transmissible. If it is, they need to know so that they can make a vaccine. It's easy to be blasé about these warnings since we've heard them before. On the other hand, we know that sooner or later, this or some other species of bird flu will gain pandemic potential. After all, it's happened before, in 1918. Next time, we're bringing you a special episode with Jeremy Farrer, the director of the Wellcome Trust. We do have some drugs for influenza. We do have some vaccines. But could those vaccines and drugs be made available to everyone in the world that needed them as the pandemic spread? The answer is no. Going Viral is presented by me, Mark Honigsbaum. And me, Hannah Mortsley. Please do subscribe to our series so you don't miss an episode. And we'd love you to rate us too. Get in touch with us on Twitter at goingviral underscore pod. Our producer is Melissa Fitzgerald. And the series is supported by the Wellcome Trust.